You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Tuesday, November 7th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and you are riding home with me where I will quickly stop by home and hopefully leave quickly for basketball practice. Soccer and basketball are merging together. That's what happens in November. So we need to get done with soccer so we can get started with basketball. Normally I'm not ready to get done with soccer because we're winning and kicking people's butts and getting first and second place, but this has been a rough year. And I think it's time to go back to the drawing board. Anyway, it's later than usual, oh. so I'm going to have some difficulty seeing my sticky note. We just, did we fall back? Is it, we fell back. Do you spring forward or fall back? No, we fell back, so now it's darker than it would have normally been right now. Right? It's 7.51 instead of 8.51. Yes, so we fell back, and it's dark. It's really 6.51 because I haven't put my clock back yet. I'm at that age where I don't know how to work clocks on cars anymore. I don't know how to set my Kia clock back. I looked at it and I said, I don't know what to do here. It's not obvious to me. It's some kind of South Korean design that I don't understand. So um, it might be seven, it might be an hour ahead on the Christian commute for a long time until we spring forward. But it is late. I am leaving late. I am leaving work later than usual because we had a we had a board dinner. The board of directors came in today, and all the corporate goons like me and salespeople went to the board dinner. I would be staying, but it's time to go home and go to basketball practice. I have a full show for you today. Did I come up with a show title? What did I call this? Frequency of ordinances. Frequency of ordinances church ordinances. We're going to talk about that. And uh, I guess we talk about the frequency and the seriousness of it. And, and the reason why we're going to do this show topic is because I just did the spontaneous baptism show on Thursday. And I just generally think that the people or the churches who do that cheapen baptism. And that baptism is so important. I mean, it's a church ordinance. It's super important. And then uh, we're talking about the first, or we're talking about how about this, the founding or the institution, institution is the word I'm looking for, the institution of the Lord's Supper in today's Bible chapter review. And in between that, we have a question. And the question is about the inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture. Nope, no it's not. It's about the authority of the New Testament, which has to do, I would argue, with the inerrancy of Scripture. So I'll get to that when the time comes to get to that. Let's start with the Bible chapter review. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 9. Jesus is still at the Passover meal with his disciples. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, 
And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it now with you. I'm sorry, when I drink it new. Sorry, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 29. Forgive the poor reading. It's dark and my handwriting is always bad on the sticky note. So this is the institution of the Lord's Supper, which happens at Passover. That's why I've been saying, or which happened at Passover. And that's why I've been saying that Passover is fulfilled. It's done. Jesus fulfilled the Passover as the Passover lamb once and for all. And he's instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance for the church. Now, you do not see the word ordinance in here because the Bible is not a theology textbook. It's not, it's, in, in some sense, it's not even a how-to manual. In some sense, it is. In some sense, it's not. So if you go to a theology textbook, you can go to the back and find ordinances, and you can find the chapter on church ordinances. And depending on what religion or what denomination you have of that theology textbook, you could find a chapter on sacraments or a chapter on ordinances. But there are two church ordinances. Why do we call them ordinances? Because God ordained them for us. One is baptism. We get that in the Great Commission. It's something he told us to do as the church. And the other thing that he told us to do as the church is this, the Lord's Supper. We see it implemented here with the apostles, and we see later in the New Testament that the early churches were doing it. So this is an ordinance which we are supposed to do in remembrance of Jesus. The elements of the Lord's Supper represent something, and Jesus tells us what they represent. The bread represents his body. His body was broken for us doesn't say that here in Matthew. It says it elsewhere in the scripture. The bread represents his body. He says, this is my body. And then the wine represents his blood. Blood of the covenant, which Jesus says is poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. And he says, drink from it. Here's the bread, eat it. This is my body. This is my blood. So that's what we're supposed to recognize when we, to this day, recognize or commemorate in communion the church ordinance of the, that we call the Lord's Supper. We take that little piece of bread that they give us, and it's not, it's not sweet bread from the Panera or the Publix Bakery. It's that unleavened bread, almost has a bitter taste to it. And then we take the little drink of wine, and that has a little sting to it, doesn't it? Especially if you're a non-drinker like me, like, ugh. And we can feel in that some small part, in some small part, what Jesus went through. 
And we recognize that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. And here, right here, is where Jesus is instituting and ordaining the Lord's Supper. Now here here we go, Protestants, because we need to understand this carefully. Because you will meet Roman Catholics. And you will... I say you will meet Roman Catholics like there's like there's Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door. Or you see Muslims at the airport. You already know Roman Catholics. They're your friends and neighbors and co-workers. There's millions of them. Okay, so we already all know Roman Catholics. And we work with them and they're our friends and we go to school with them and we play ball with them, etc., etc., etc. They are an ingrained part of our culture that we have here. And they go to a different church than we do. And they have a profoundly different view of the Lord's Supper than we do because of, because of many things, but especially transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. The Roman Catholics believe that when communion happens, the bread transubstantiates. I don't want to say magically, because it's not magic. It's The idea is it's a miracle. That the bread transubstantiates literally into the flesh of Jesus Christ, and you eat his body. And then they believe that the communion wine transubstantiates into the blood of Jesus Christ, and you literally drink his blood. And here's the idea. That happens when? During the the Catholic Mass. The Catholic Mass is essentially a re-crucifying of Christ. So the Catholic Church, through the authority of God the Father, and the the Magisterium has the authority of God, they're breaking Jesus' body again. They're shedding Jesus' blood again. For for sins. Because in Catholic Church, in the Catholic theology, you have to keep paying for your sins over and over and over. Now the Bible says that Jesus died once for all. That's what the Apostle Peter wrote. You can go look it up. That that he died once for all. The just for the unjust. So your sins, past, present, and future, are paid for forever on the cross. At that point in time. Circa 30 A.D. But what the Catholics teach on communion is that you have to keep going to Mass in order for you to keep receiving grace dispensed through the sacrament of communion. That you can only get from the Catholic Church. And that's bad theology. And otherwise, you need that over and over to keep having your sins forgiven. And that's why we come into their synergistic soteriology and their works-based salvation in that you exist in a state of sin, whether it be venial sin or cardinal sin. You're not in a state of grace until you confess your sin. That's another sacrament, confession and make penance if necessary, if determined by the priest. And then, that gives you grace 
And also you get grace from communion because the church is having Jesus pay for your sins again and again and again with every Mass. And that, my dear listeners, is why I never, ever, in the Chris Jericho voice, never, ever go to a Catholic wedding or a Catholic funeral. Now, I will, of course, I mean, we have Catholic friends and family members that we love. We want to be a part of their lives. If we're invited to their wedding, I would suggest going to the reception and celebrating their marriage with them because there's nothing ungodly or unbiblical about a man and a woman marrying one another. And if they have a funeral, go to the wake or the visitation beforehand and pay your respects there. But ultimately, you need to pay your respect, honor, and fealty to the Lord Jesus Christ and not go to a false, dare I say, pagan religious ceremony that is the Mass where Christ is re-crucified. Because every time they claim to re-crucify Christ, they're preaching their false gospel, and we should not stand for it as Christians. And people don't think that through. If you know, you know. Like, I've been to a Catholic wedding before when I was a little kid, and I was told that this is going to take forever, and it did. But that's all I was told, because people tell you Catholics take forever. I, I didn't know anything about their theology. I knew Catholics were wrong. My parents told me from the very beginning, especially my mother, Catholics don't believe what we do. They believe in works-based salvation. You gotta do, all right? My mom's just a regular old Baptist lady, but she knew. And I've always believed that. I couldn't explain it like this, but I can now. So that's why I will not go, and you I don't think you should either. I'm not trying to bind your conscience or tell you what you should do. But you shouldn't go be a part of that either. Because the Mass is inherently sinful and inherently preaches a false gospel to the very people you love. Those people that you love, your friends, families, and co-workers who invited you to that wedding. That priest is having that Mass saying, I alone... Through the Roman, well, not I alone, because there's a bunch of priests, but basically in that town, he's the parish guy. I alone have the authority to marry you through the authority given to me by the Catholic Church through God, and I dispense this grace upon you, the sacrament of marriage, and they have communion because it's a mass, and I dispense this grace on you. You can't get it without us. And that's a synergistic, works-based gospel. And we ought to reject it. And what are the Catholics going to tell you? See, it says right here in the Bible, take this, this is my blood. Take this, this is my body. I really think a plain reading of Scripture, whether it's read by a Christian or just anybody who would ever read this throughout the world, whether a Christian or not, even a, a critical scholar who's who's not saved, would say Jesus is clearly talking metaphorically here. Now, there were cults back in the day of like the Greek pagan gods where you were supposed to ingest the god through these rituals. That's what's so bad about Catholicism because it looks more like paganism than New Testament Christianity because in Catholicism you have a saint of this, a saint of that. Patriot say to this, patriot say to that. And it's like, yeah, it's like when you have the God of water, the God of the sky, the God of the sun, the God of doctors, I mean, yeah, all these things. 
It's 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 dressed up. It's paganism. I was going to say it's dressed up paganism, but no, it, paganism is dressed up, and so is Roman Catholicism. With they they're in their vestments and their robes with their gold and their staffs. Don't dress like Gandalf and tell me you're not a wizard. <laughs> oh, somebody meme that. Hey, hey, Cardinal, don't dress like Gandalf. Tell me you're not a wizard. And I've had a Roman Catholic person tell me before, see, right here it says it in the Bible. This is my blood. Well, I want you to respond this way when they say that. But but Jesus says, I will not take part of the fruit of the vine again until we're in the kingdom with my Father. And you ask them, okay, one, he calls it the fruit of the vine, which is clearly wine. He just refers to it to wine again. And he says he's going to take part of it with you but not until he's in the kingdom. Why would he need to take part of it in the kingdom? Because aren't all sins forgiven then when we're in the kingdom and we're in the new heavens and new earth? Why are we still taking communion? Why do we still need forgiveness every week? Why does Jesus need to do it? I mean, tie him up in knots. Because, hey, listen. These people, they're, they're, a, lot, they're a lot like any kind of church-going people, like us. We sit there in the pew. They say, this is what it means. We listen. We say, okay, this is what it means. They're catechized. They tell them this is what it means. Some of them think, well, this is kind of a fairy tale. I don't know about this, but they still think this is what it means. And that's what they believe because they're told. You got to challenge them on it and share the real gospel with them. Listen, we don't not go to Catholic weddings or funerals to be mean-spirited or holier than thou or self-righteous. We do it to show that they need the real gospel of Jesus Christ to be saved. Out of love for them, the sinner, and love for our Lord, who we won't stand to see re-crucified on that Roman Catholic pagan altar. We need to think through these things. So, from a Bible chapter standpoint... All this is is the institution of the Lord's Supper. The bread represents his body. The blood represents, or sorry, the wine represents his blood. Plain and simple. In Bible chapter review, right? Yeah, all right. Okay, here's what it doesn't mean. Here's how you're going to encounter this. It's a big deal. And I think sometimes we as Baptists take communion so infrequently, we don't realize what a big deal it is. And let me add this. If you go to a Roman Catholic church and you're not Catholic, they won't give you communion because you're not a member of the Catholic church and they're not going to give you that sacrament. That's not them being mean. That's them living out their theology. When I worked at the Marist school, which was not a Roman Catholic school as it wasn't owned by the archdiocese. I think St. Pius is the Atlanta school that's actually owned by the Catholics. It's an official Catholic parochial school. Marist was owned by an order of priests. And it was about 75% Catholic, 25% non-Catholic. But they had they had masses. Like some you know, like if you'd have chapel at a private school, they had a mass. And anybody could go if they wanted to. And uh, the priests during the orientation of my historical group, because everybody who came in in employment was like, all right, your historical group 2001, you're 2002. That's your historical group. We're going to give you orientation. We're going to t- teach you about the values of the school, this, that, and the other. 
and the history of the school. The priest, Father Conson, he told us once, he said, we used to give communion to everybody. And then the bishop heard about it. And he said, if you keep doing this, you can leave and take your dead with you. And what he was saying is, we will send you and your entire order to hell if you keep doing this because you're not allowed to do it. So they take it serious, seriously. Good for them to, for taking it seriously, even though they're wrong. And uh, I have some friends who we're in the same soccer club with, and you can imagine they travel. Their, their, their daughter is even better than ours. They're top, they have a top-level daughter. And they said that they, um, they went to an early mass once before a soccer game. I don't know if they were in Cartersville or some other place, but they were traveling and they had to find an early church service. And they got real offended when their kids couldn't get communion. And they said, well, we're not going to go here if they won't give us communion. And I just want to say to them when people say stuff like that, like, you shouldn't have gone asking them for communion. Don't go ask somebody for poison and get mad at them when they won't give it to you. You're, you're wrong for taking your kids there and trying to get communion from the Catholic Church. But of course they didn't know. They didn't know the theology behind it. But now you do. Now you do. And you can use that to have conversations. You want, you, we, we can have conversations with people, especially our friends, about our religious differences. That, are, that aren't acrimonious conversations, but they're conversations where we can say this is different and we as Christians always want to use those differences to point back to the gospel because that's really what makes us different from the other religions is because we're religion of done to telestah on the cross and everybody else is a religion of do. So always point back to that difference so they can stop working for their salvation and accept the the free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no other kind of grace but free grace, by the way. If you have to pay for it, it ain't grace. If you have to earn it, it ain't grace. All right. Let's move on to the inbox. Terry from California writes in. Terry's keeping the show alive. She, a pastor recently said this, that when Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed, he's only talking about the Old Testament and that doesn't apply to the New Testament. And Terry's question is, well, is then the New Testament, is he right? And is the New Testament authoritative? So he's, he's sort of right. He's half right. One, Paul is literally talking only about the Old Testament when he wrote that because that's all they had at the time. Paul had already writ, written some of the biblical books by the time he wrote 2 Timothy. By the way, 2 Timothy is one of the one of the books that was written later in the New Testament, especially later in Paul's ministry. In fact, critical scholars don't believe that he wrote it because they believe he was already dead and he couldn't have wrote it. They date it that late. But Paul, by the way, had written some scripture. Like Thessalonians, he would have written already. The Gospels may, may or may not have been written yet. It really depends on your dating. and they don't. We date letters nowadays. It would be nice if they'd have dated these letters, but they didn't or Paul would have dated his letters, and Jude would have dated his, and Peter, and so on. But when he says all scripture, graphe, the writings, ketuvim in the Hebrew, but it would have been graphe in Greek, uh, yes, he is referring to the Old Testament. 
there's no doubt about it, Terry, because that's the Bible that they had. And they had not compiled and canonized the New Testament yet. But to say it doesn't apply to the New Testament, even though Paul wasn't talking about the New Testament, is wrong. And here's why. Because of analogies and equivalencies. Go to 2 Peter 3.16. 2 Peter 3.16. And by the way, critical scholars also doubt the authorship of the Petrine epistles. Either one or both. Right? So if you go to 2 Peter 3.16, Peter is talking about Paul's writings. And he says, sometimes they're hard to understand and people will try to twist them, what? As they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures. In other words, Peter is making Paul's writings, what are those? Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. He's making those equal to scripture. He's saying... They are scripture. So if we take a truth, a general theological truth that all scripture is God-breathed and without error, even though Paul's only talking about the Old Testament because that's all that exists, we can say, hold on, the New Testament is scripture too, therefore it is God-breathed. Because it's either scripture or it's not. So yes, Terry, your pastor is right. Paul's only talking about the Old Testament there. That's all he's talking about because that's all they had. But theologically, when we're doing a systematic theology, when we're applying the broader meaning of that, because there's a specific meaning in Scripture, and then there are often broader theological principles that you can apply when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, you can apply that to Paul's writings. And somebody can say, well, well, Peter didn't say about his own writings. And what about Jude? And what about Revelation? You can be like that too if you want to be so pedantic. The reason the New Testament is authoritative, if there was no 2 Timothy or 2 Peter, here's the reason the New Testament is authoritative. And this is what the early church believed. is because it's apostolic. Apostles had the authority... And the New Testament books are apostolic in nature and they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. The early church believed that these books were inspired by the Holy Spirit and apostolic. Mark, written by Mark, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's Peter's story of Jesus. Matthew is Matthew. Luke, Luke's not an apostle, but you see Luke is in Acts. Like Luke wrote Luke, wrote Luke in Acts and at the end of Acts, he's in it. And he's... He's a, that's the Acts of the Apostles. So he's with them. He's telling their stories. John. John's an apostle. Peter is an apostle. Paul is an apostle. James is an Well, James is not the apostle James, but he is an apostle in that he's the half-brother of Jesus, and so on and so on. So the New Testament is authoritative because it has the authority of the apostles. Oh, and yes, since it's Scripture... 2 Peter 3.16 does apply to it. Think, have an analogy like this. If, and if the Apostle Paul says, all Ford cars are reliable cars. And I know that's not true because a lot of Ford cars aren't. But let's just say they were. Paul says, all Ford cars are reliable cars. The worthy to be test driven and then one day 
let's say tomorrow Ford comes out with the Ford Stallion. Not the Ford Mustang, not the Ford Pinto, not the Ford Bronco, the Ford Stallion. It's a brand new car they've never made before. But it's a Ford car. It didn't exist when Paul said all Ford cars are reliable. But this car came from Ford. It's Ford breathed. Should we not therefore count it as reliable? Now I know that's a terrible analogy because Ford means fixer or repair daily. I'm just I could have I guess I should have made it the opposite analogy. All Ford cars are unreliable. So don't trust the stallion. But you get what I'm saying. No, he wasn't talking about that because it didn't exist yet. But what is Scripture? I guess you have to go define Scripture. You don't define Scripture as the Old Testament. What you do is define Scripture as God's Word. What makes the Old Testament Scripture? What made those books? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through Malachi. What, 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 what? It's God's Word from God's prophets. So, if something's from God's prophets and God's apostles, it's scripture. If it's written from them. That's what graphe means, written word. You, you, you guys understand that graphe could be anything. Graphe, graphe could be a novel, your grocery list. Anything that's writings. But they, they meant in the proper term of the word scripture. That's how he's using the word there. Graphe, scripture. So yes, the New Testament is authoritative and you can apply 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 3.16 to that. That's the answer, Terry. Now let's talk about the frequency of ordinances. So after last Sunday going to Spontaneous Baptism Sunday at um, Burnt Hickory and, and then giving my podcast Thursday about how awful that was and how they should be ashamed of themselves. I went to church Sunday morning at First Baptist and there I, there I was sitting in the first service and you know how many baptisms they had that day? Seven. Seven in the first service. I don't know how many they had in the second service. Maybe zero. I don't know. But I was like, praise God! There's seven baptisms today. Six adults and, oh, sorry, six kids and one adult. And I was like, that's really great that even one of these people has chosen to publicly identify with Christ in baptism. But we are recognizing the ordinance today of baptism and the church is performing it. That's super. Now, I know we're not going to do that every week. Why? Because somebody's not professing Christ every week. Somebody's not getting catechized every week. You take the Baptists or baptisms as the Baptists come. Because you only get baptized once. How many times should you be baptized once? By immersion as a professed believer. That's what baptism is and you should get baptized once. Now I know there's people out there who say, well I wasn't really a believer, I just got wet. Whatever, get baptized again then. But your first one then didn't count. Listen, if you're second baptizing people, you need to ask where they got baptized the first time and then write to the Southern Baptist Convention 
I'll do it this way. Let's say somebody got baptized at Tabernacle. Then they came to First Baptist and said, I was a false convert. I just got wet. I think First Baptist should write to the Southern Baptist Convention when they put their ACS report in and say, Dear Southern Baptist Convention, please take negative one baptisms. Add negative one baptisms to Tabernacle's count this year because they reported a false one. And I'm just kidding. That's that's tongue-in-cheek because I don't think you should report the baptisms. Look at how many baptisms we got. But anyway, you just do it once. That's what a baptism is. So you cannot expect to have one or multiple baptisms every week because people might not be getting saved and asking to be baptized. So what should the frequency of baptisms be? As many as the people want to get baptized this week. At First Baptist Church of Cartersville this week, it was seven. Because that's what, I guess you could say, that's what the demand was. There's a limitless supply of baptism, right? We got water. We got all kind of preachers and water. We'll dunk you all day. But there's got to be a demand. So, good for them. Good for them. But what about that other ordinance, the one we're supposed to do more than once? By the way, the one we shouldn't do until after we're baptized. Even though it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. The Lord's Supper. I mean, it happened at Passover. Should we just do it once a year? Around Easter, which is when Passover was? About this Passover and Passover and Easter, about the same time of the year. Is that when we should do it? Should we do it every Sunday? I don't know where quarterly came from. A lot of Baptist churches do it quarterly. A lot of them do it at the night service, and I know why. I think I know why, because only the true believers come at night. You don't have to, to tell anybody who came in the morning, like, no, I'm not going to, you can't have this. That, that doesn't work in today's world of uh, de- decisional regeneration and get them in with a carnival and secret sensitivity. Oh, we're so glad you're here. You can't have this tiny cup of grape juice. It will heap condemnation upon your soul if you take it. So don't do it. Like I said, the Bible is not a theology textbook. It's not a how-to guide. There's nowhere that says, all right, chapter 3, subsection A, page 5, how often should we take communion? Now, the Roman Catholic Church does it every week during every Mass. I should say they do it every Mass because there's an 8 o'clock Mass, a 9 o'clock Mass, a 10 o'clock Mass. They have have Masses every day at the Catholic Church. Obviously, the well-attended ones are on Sunday, the Lord's Day, but... They can have it any time they want. And they do it every time because they have to, because they have to pay for the sins every week. Here. Here's the, you got to pay for your sins. Take it, take it, take it, take it. Do you know, I think it was before Vatican II that you used to couldn't have the wine. The priest would give you, he'd place the wafer on your tongue, but he'd drink the wine for you. So not only were you literally getting grace through the Catholic Church, it was not only through the church, through the priest, because you might spill some of the wine. And then, was it? Did they have a separate priest to drink the wine and a separate one to give the sermon? I have to imagine those were some tipsy sermons. Hey! (laughs) 50 people took communion today. I've had a little too much to drink. I'm going to let Father Brown teach today. I'm a little loopy. (sighs) If Jesus says, do this and remember of of him, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you this. At most, 
you can't do it anymore. I, we should if we did it every Lord's Day. If we did it every Lord's Day, it would not be too much. Because there we're there every Sunday to commemorate Easter. That's why the Lord's Day is on Sunday to recognize that Sunday, that Easter morning when the Lord rose from the grave. Zero is obviously too low. So how often should we do it? I'm going to I'm going to argue this. As many times as you think it would be beneficial to God's people to do it in remembrance of him. There's a lot of Baptist churches out there right below the pulpit. They got a fancy table that says, "Do this in remembrance of me." And that's the communion table. That's where they set the elements when they give it out. And it's a big deal when they give it out. The the deacons all come out. And uh, the Catholics would call them Eucharistic ministers. So not just anybody can hand that out, hand out communion. The Catholic Church, you have to be certified as a Eucharistic minister. Generally at the Baptist Church, you need to be a deacon. It doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. It's just kind of like that's how we do it. And the deacons hand that out to everybody. It takes a long time. And then the preacher says, all right, he reads the verse. He says, take this. This is my body broken for you. You eat it. You sit there and think about what it is. And then you say, all right, this is my, this is the blood of the covenant, or this is the cup of the covenant poured out for sins. And you drink it, and it's real quiet. The only thing you can hear is the slurps. And then you get on with the church service. I think the reason we don't do it that much at church is because it takes a lot of time time that they could be making announcements or singing or preaching and since we Baptists don't believe it does anything since it's just a memorial we may think well we don't have to do it it wouldn't be if, if we were Catholic or high church we, we just do it because it because it does something well now this doesn't do anything to make us remember how often should you remember if it was up to me, we'd do it every week. And by the way, it was we'd do it quicker. So this this is this is something practical, I'm gonna tell you. This is a real story. I'm gonna tell you I learned, I heard it I heard the story in seminary in my worship leadership class. Uh, Dr. Mike Miller was team teaching the class with Dr. Michael Sharp. Michael Sharp was the music guy, Mike Miller was the preacher guy. And uh, this was at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. So you gotta understand that's Catholic country. You might think New Orleans is so wild and pagan that it's not religion. Well, the religious, well, the main religion, nominally at least, is, is Catholicism down there because it's French. Louisiana is a French heritage state as compared to some of the other states, which are English heritage. So we would be more Protestant or literally Anglican. Uh, but there's a lot of Catholicism in New Orleans, as there are in a lot of big cities. And the people who come to the Baptist churches there come out of Catholicism and then they understand the real gospel and then they resent Catholicism. And how do you get communion in Catholicism? You walk up to the front and they give you your elements and you take it. That's more efficient than having somebody hand it out. That takes forever. Has anybody ever, you get the the big communion, what do you call it? Is it a plate? It's a big circle. It's a big silver circle. And it's got all these little holes in it for the little tiny cups. And people are passing it 
and you know people are trying not to you're doing everything you can not to drop the communion older it's like this is the blood of the covenant we don't believe in transubstantiation but we do not want to spill this grape juice this is like very sacred we're all nervous like gingerly handing it across down the aisle and the piano player is he plays like two or three piano songs he plays I Surrender all three times uh that takes forever. So people think, let's just set it up in the front and people can go up and get it. Well, if you do that in New Orleans, people will get mad and say, no, that's too Catholic. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm saying that's how we ought to do it. Some people sit there and say, I don't want to do it that way. It's too Catholic. We got to do it this way. I think people would call that audiophora, but that's what you got to deal with. In my opinion, we should walk up and get it. Very frequently. When's the last time you took one of the ordinances at your church? Obviously, your baptism was, well, the last time I got baptized was, oh, let me think, 1982, 18 years to get to 2000, 18 years, 10 years to get to 2010, and that would have put me in 28, 25. I want to say I got baptized in 2007. I have a certificate that Tabernacle Baptist Church gave me the last time I saw it. It was in the back seat of my black CRV. I guarantee you they still have a record of it. But I should I should go down there and be like, can I get a new certificate? I lost mine. It's like going to the county health department. I've lost my birth certificate. I need to go down to Tabernacle. I can't find my baptism certificate. And I need to tell the people on my podcast exactly when I was baptized. So yeah, the last time I got baptized was like 15 years ago. Probably the same for you. When's the last time you took the Lord's Supper? Been a while? Can't remember? You should probably do it. Ask. If you don't know, ask. Don't wonder. And don't go telling them. By the way, if, if you wonder about this, go talk to your pastor about it. Or your pastors, elders, whoever is in charge. Don't go, we need to take it more. We're doing wrong. Just going like, hey, when do we take communion? How often and why and why not more? Let them explain. See if you agree with their reasons. See if they're good. Isn't it great to be more participative in church and wonder about what's going on? And I want to tell you this, because I mean, I'm basically done with the show. Now I'm just opining about other things. A lot of pastors out there go up and preach being participative. Participative. All right, we've got this new program... Oh, gosh. What's the last one they did at First Baptist? Oh, gosh. They had something like some website where you put in your address. You signed up for the website. And like there was your house. And then you were supposed to go like invite your neighbors to dinner or invite them to church and you're supposed to like it's, it's all it's all like a Google map I never signed on to it but you were like you you click on all the people you've had God, gospel conversations with and it shows you like a little map all right so let's this is what you're supposed to be doing you know participate in this program we've had they had one I don't know months before that where they had little, they had Chuck E. Cheese balls. 
You know what I'm talking about? Chuck E. Cheese balls? Like, if you go to Showbiz Pizza or Chuck E. Cheese, they have the ball pit. And you ride a, you go down a slide and you jump in the ball pit. And they have different colors. They put a big clear plastic or glass container in the lobby. And every time you shared the gospel with somebody, you were supposed to put in like a white ball. And every time somebody got saved, you were supposed to put in, I think, a red ball. And I guess this was like, this is something you're supposed to do. Like, hey, you walk in, you see the ball pit in the lobby. You're like, oh, man, I didn't share the gospel with anybody this week. How am I, how am I fulfilling the Great Commission? So there's all kinds of little programs churches will set you up to do, and the preacher, will, he'll preach that program. Like, all right, we're gonna, we've bought this program, and then we're going to, we want you to do it. And he'll preach a little sermon and say, well, this is what the Bible says, blah, blah, blah. And the way you carry this out is to do this. So they're out there preaching participation. And a lot of, a lot of it is just like, hey, volunteer for this. Say, we got a blue million jobs for you to volunteer to. And some of them could be ad hoc, like right now. Uh, the little Billy Graham shoeboxes are going out, so a lot of churches need people to move the shoeboxes onto the truck. Because some of these churches, you get like a thousand shoeboxes. It's going to take a long time to load that up. So there's there's little jobs like that that come up, and then there's the jobs that you can do every week. Like altar counselor, parking lot. I always say a parking lot attendant. I always try to think of a different one that they're trying to hard. Do this. Be participative. But a lot of that get pre the stuff to be participative is, all right, we want you to invest and invite. Give money, invite people to church, or invite people to Jesus Christ. Which are all things you should be doing, by the way. The preacher shouldn't have to beat you up to do them. He should not have to preach a sermon series like, all right, or buy a program to get you to do this. These are things that you should just be doing as a Christian without being cajoled. Some of y'all ain't going to do them unless the preacher cajoles you. It's just how it is. So he's up there cajoling all the time. At any town, at any town USA, F, First Baptist, any town USA, there's a lot of cajoling that has to go on. But that's where I think a lot of church administration wants participation to start and stop. When you start like, well, getting into like what you sing or how often you do the ordinances, it's going to be like, oh, we got, we got that covered. That's what I think you'll run into. We got that covered. You might run into a pastor who's like, thank God, somebody is interested in what we're doing here. Let me explain it to you. Yes. That's like when somebody asked me about one of my spreadsheets. You want to know how my spreadsheet works? Well, let me show you the query behind it. It's got 5,000 lines, and this is left join, and you got to do this, and you filter this, and this is what it does. It pulls from these two systems. They might be like that. I don't know. But I kind of think the man who's interested in knowing why the ordinances aren't celebrated more is going to be a, probably the same guy who's dedicated enough in his faith to be fulfilling the Great Commission. I don't know. I'm just doing a podcast, right? I'm just, I'm just talking. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. As always, God bless. And as always, remember Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Now, I don't know. Listen, I would love to have ended the show right there. Succinctly, what did I do? I can't find my phone. I gotta press the little button. Let's press the button. No, I'm gonna do it. Remember, Christianity is not about being... No, what is it? It's not about getting saved, it's about being Thanks saved. Thanks for God listening bless. to the Christian Commute. 
please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.